Hello, and welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about humans and technology. And today we are going to be talking about maybe things in the past. Uh, Susan has a really good name for a title. Hello, Susan. Hi. Uh, what is you had? What was the full length of the title of the of the podcast today? I tend to call it a hysterical historical review of human computer interaction. Yep, that's a good one. <laughs> and review like review is spelled R E V U E, like a you know, like a musical review. I, okay, if you say so. <laughs> I didn't know that was spelled differently. I think it is. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so it's just is... it's really fun. I think to um, just sometimes stop and look back on where we've been and where we've come from, because I think sometimes we get really excited about you know where we're headed with technology or what's going on right now, and then when you look back you realize wow i was really excited about this other stuff and now it looks really sounds really bad so i it just kind of gives you an, an interesting point of view all right so let's um this uh, for we have a wide audience so why don't you talk a little bit about the, your field in particular and then you can get started into the history you mean human computer interaction yeah what what it to you what is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? HCI. That or some people are calling HCI. it. Yeah. Well, some, you, you kind of have to, to give the whole thing and the different names. And yeah, yeah. Go and ahead. Some people these days, by the way, are calling it HTI, which we've started calling it, but I forget. And I sometimes say HCI. And HTI is human technology interaction because of the idea that what we're talking about now as we move towards, you know, um, the Amazon Echo and Siri and and uh, dealing with robots. We're not just talking about computers. We're talking about technology. But anyway, the whole idea is that that you've got people and you have some kind of technology and you have the that interface or that interaction between the two, and that 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 point that place where the human is interacting with the machine or the technology is a really important spot and it's important to pay attention to and it's important to design that interaction. And so that's where that the whole thing came from. And wow, if we go into a, like a little, a brief little history of the field, um, it actually goes back to a, a another field called human factors, which ha started like in the, Oh, probably like in the 1930s um, when, uh, I mean, if you really, I mean, and different people have different um, histories and stories, they, legends about <laughs> the origins of the field. But here's what I say. Uh, I mean, you have this idea of uh, studying humans and how they interact with stuff um, and some people include back in the 1930s when um, researchers would show up at the factory and and take notes on, you know, how long does it take someone to do this particular task on the assembly line, and they would time it, and they would look at their physical movements, and, you know, so if we, 
If we made the knob for that machine a little larger, a little smaller, it would make it easier on the human or it would make it go faster. And mm. so this idea that you can and should design machines so that they better fit the people that need to use it. So that's really the origins. Now, um, uh, well, so I just want to contrast that with a modern story. Yeah. Uh, we were, I was at a talk or I heard somewhere, I forget where I heard this example. But Amazon was, uh, I think it was Amazon. Maybe, maybe you know this story. Um, so they were investigating, there had been an incident in which a worker had gotten uh, his hand stuck in a roller. Mm. You know, packages are you know, mm. rolling through and he'd got his hand stuck in a roller. Um, and so uh, they did the incident report and um, they they asked the, the why question. Yeah. So why did his hand get stuck in the roller? Well, because his uh, his backpack uh, was had fell and he went to grab it. Right. So then they asked why why was why did his backpack fall because he was putting it on the uh, conveyor belt. Well, why did he have his backpack on the conveyor belt because there wasn't any other place to put it. Yeah. So they used this information then to put tables to give to give all the workers little stands so they could put their belongings yeah uh, to make everything work yeah and i think you know the modern version yeah the initial idea of human factors is 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 that and in fact there is a history of human factors concerns being coming to the forefront when there's an accident or when someone loses money or you know that kind of thing yeah, when people care. When pe- and that's when people care. But the idea being that, well, you could care before that. You could just, <laughs> you could, um, you know, be proactive and look for situations like that. So that's kind of the yeah. whole human factors realm. And, it, and it's funny because a lot of the human factors ties in, especially with uh, machinery. For those of you who don't know, um, I actually uh, know a fair bit about um, uh, industrial processes a little bit. Uh, maybe not. I'm not. I'm no expert. But um, for uh, a year or two, I actually worked um, down in Houston for oil companies, uh, and as part of my duties, uh, I did uh, basically did inspections of uh, like plant inspections of uh, of various suppliers. So our team would go in, and we'd literally walk through the shop floor and look for problems and uh, make sure everything was under compliance. So so it's it's interesting because a lot of the safety stuff and um uh, there are do you know the iso specifications sure. yeah there are yeah. And, and you know there are and they have a, yeah they have a trillion of them and they have iso specifications for um you know uh human computer interaction mm. yeah and 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 it so so a lot of those like uh, i did a lot of iso 9001 yeah um, and then there's 14001, which I think is the safety one. Uh, uh, but anyways, the, so it's really interesting. Um, so that and the, was it Six Sigma and the, a lot of the warehouse um, kind of, uh, kind of uh, Japanese Toyota car, you know, from the 80s, the car manufacturer, uh, con- consistent yep. improvement stuff. Um, it's It ties in very closely with, I guess, the ideals of, 
human factors. Yeah. So, so the it's whole like the idea, same, the, the brothers. Yeah, the whole idea is that if it fits the human better, then everything is better. So mm-hmm. you know, you'll you'll be more productive. You'll avoid. And you just try to errors. continue to find improvements. Yeah, and this became um, even more. Uh, in terms of, you know, how this directly ends up being, you know, HCI or um, HTI, uh, in a lot of it is often driven by the U.S. military is one place where there are advances. So in World War II, um, you had a lot, you had this increase in technology being used in in. Uh, the military, for instance, just the idea of airplanes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you got to fly an airplane and then fire. And fire with it, yeah. And Can and, I tell you, oh, when you finish, I have a, I actually have an airplane story for you. <laughs> well, you want to tell it now? Okay, sure. So uh, in World War I, um, they had, so there had been airplanes, uh, but they were mostly used for, like, reconnaissance. Um, and then World War One, the other side started having airplanes, and they realized that they needed to shoot at the other side with their airplanes. Um, but there was, there's no real way to do it, you know. Uh, f- the old airplanes were hard enough to fly, literally as it was. Right. Um, and in fact, early in, you know, in World War One, we kind of think of the, at least like the little, like the Red Baron and the little dogfights that they would have. But early in World War One, the planes were much closer to like. Uh, the the Wright brothers like wooden yeah. aircrafts uh, and they made they made pretty you know big strides fairly quickly, but the problem that they had is they still had they 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 couldn't fly the plane and aim the gun at the same time. Yeah, it just wasn't a thing that they could do. So originally in World War One, the pilot would literally open the window and shoot at the other plane with a pistol. Well, that makes sense. That was the first one, and so then then they realized this this literally was doing absolutely nothing. Um, so then what they did was they put they put guns on the wings. But the problem was is that the guns couldn't aim. It was just a machine gun bolted on the, the top of the wing. And so uh, what they ended up doing was they made the propellers um, out of, like, steel. And they literally just shoot the gun through the propeller. And every <laughs> every once in a while, the you know, bullets would hit the, the, the propeller blades. But whatever, they were made of metal. And then you just kind of point the plane towards the other person, wow. and they'd fire. And then now, eventually, they figured out, oh, okay, we're gonna put 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 them on the nose of the plane, wow. and that way you can just aim. And then, of course, the big but and the big step was then making a gun that you could pivot and move and point at the other uh, at the other plane. But there wasn't a good uh, human uh, interaction, yeah. So that you could fly the plane and point the gun where it needed to go at the same time. It just yeah. didn't exist. So, yeah, well, and then, you know, the other thing that compounded and the other reason um, we often point to uh, World War Two as kind of the beginning of our field is because you had not only did you have, you know, advanced technology uh, and more, you know, in World War Two, even more complex planes. But now you had people, um, you know, being drafted into the military who didn't have specialized training in in any of this stuff i mean planes or guns or you know tanks or any of it and you had to you had to teach them really fast right how to use this stuff and so 
this whole question of, okay, you know, how do you get someone to learn how to use this and how do you get them to use it safely and became even more important. And um, so that's really when uh, this field called man, it was called man-machine um, interaction uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, you didn't have women, you just had men. And um, mm-hmm. that's when that started. And and the realization, the understanding that if you're talking about taking people who don't know, any, you know, civilians who don't know anything about this and you're going to have them use complex equipment, maybe we'd better get psychologists involved. So that was really the kind of the beginning of of the field now what happened after that is it you know it kept changing um and then uh it was called human uh, machine interaction for a while and then computers came out right computers came on board and we're going to talk about kind of the history of that as well and when when you get to the point especially where um not just computer scientists, but everyday people start using computers. So that's in the like mm, maybe mid 80, early 80s, mid 80s. Um, that's when you really get this uh, a branch of the whole human factors and man machine interface, uh, all of that work. A branch um, starts up called um, human computer interaction the understanding that, well, yeah, we have all these other machines. And that, and by the way, those, those two, you know, branches uh, kind of c- kept going off in their own offshoot, uh, kind of their own evolution. So you still, there's still human factors in, you know, machines. And, and uh, I, I visited once a human factors lab for, um, that made uh, all the controls in a car, you know, like the knobs, knobs and the sliders and, and sure. for the radio and the, and the, uh, air conditioning and, and the, you know, changing gears and all of that. So there's a whole, you know, and that was really fun. I mean, they, they get into, you know, okay, so you got a dial, you know, that you're going to turn on your sound system in the car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you turn it, should you feel the notches? You know, how, how much of a feel and wh- how many notches and how big should the knob be? And th- all those questions. I mean, that and so that that work still goes on. And that's one branch. But then all was this offshoot of just about computers. And, and that even got, you know, even smaller in a way because it turned into uh, an offshoot of the design of computer software and screens and, and uh, even, you know, I mean, when you're designing, uh, whether you're designing software or an app or a website, you're not really designing anything physical, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. all imaginary. But that whole thing became, you know, that became its own thing. And that's that part of the human computer interaction uh, specialty really started, I, I would say in the mid eighties and has continued, you know, on up, on up to the present. And um, so that's what human computer or human technology interaction is. It's the idea that there is an interface 
that the human deals with in dealing with the computer or the machine or the technology, and you want to design that so um, that it fits the human. Now, it started off as a easy to, you know, you want to design it so it's easy to use. Yeah. Um, and, and then it turned into, um, and actually, I think this is partly my fault. It turned Your, you personally. Yeah, me personally. It mm. turned into, you know, not just you make it easy to use, but um, make it persuasive, make it engaging, make it so people will take the action you want them to take. That I, and really, I do. I think that's my fault. So I, I, I claim credit and I apologize at the same time for starting that whole branch, um, but. Uh, it, you know, and then it went from name wise, it went from, you know, like human computer interaction to usability kind of came into vogue. And then, uh, user experience is a term that's pretty much used now. Yeah. But, um, so that's that whole, actually, that's not what I thought we were going to talk about on this podcast though. No, that was literally just the intro to the topic. That was a really long intro. Well, you kept going. <laughs> So, but that does play. You're right. It places it in perspective. But I was going to talk about just the some of well, the yeah. So now that we've laid laid the foundation, yeah, some of the old ways that we actually did interact with computers back then. Now, um, of course, you and I are both way too young to have personally experienced any of the things we're going to talk about, right? I don't know. Well, that was a joke. You're too young. Unfortunately, I experienced a lot of maybe, this. Maybe in my off time, I use punch cards on my loom machine at home. You might. How do you know I what don't I do know. in my free time? Yeah, so some I, of these... I have, my, I have my loom machine right here next to me, <laughs> So some of these technologies that we're going to talk about, um, I may not want to admit that I personally use... Okay. Because it would date, it would date me, and 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 I don't want to do that. But um, so if we look at if we just talk about and some of the you know uh, people listening out there. It depends on when you got started with computers, whether just, you, you know about these or not. Though, right? though, just just as a note, yeah. Um, recently, in the uh, young, cool, um, urban community, yeah, and and. I'm using urban literally in the city sense, not the cultural sense. Uh, there is uh, this a brand new wave of uh, uh, people thinking analog is really cool. So of yeah, course, it's the retro. Small subs- huh? Yeah, well, a small subset is is the vinyl people, but much larger. You know, the steampunk had a little its heyday. And, there's, you know, using machines and actually that actually do things. Well, you know, it's interesting. So, so you say that people probably have never experienced this, but. But maybe you, they have. You might be surprised. They're well, a little... you know, when when I recently went to buy a new keyboard for my yes, that's, office, that's right? Perfect, perfect example. I had no idea. You told me. You said, well, yeah. maybe you want a mechanical keyboard. And I was like, what? Yes. You know, and. You know, to me, a mechanical keyboard was a throwback. It was, you know, like, why the heck would you want to get an, you know, a, a, a keyboard that went clackety, so first, clackety, first, clack? Can, I'd just like the audience 
<laughs> That's um yeah, so, like that. <laughs> so there is a yeah, um, there's a I, I subscribe to a Reddit to a subreddit called uh, Mechanical Keyboards that's literally just about how great mechanical keyboards are. And the almost universal consensus is that whatever like the, the IBM keyboard in 1986 was like the greatest keyboard ever, that there's never been a better keyboard. Yeah, that's so funny because- and In fact, when people find like old ones, you know, like in basements and stuff, they, they post on there and everyone's like, oh my God, it's so great. Yeah, I probably have a couple of those in my basement. Really? Honestly, they might be worth like a couple hundred bucks. Oh, now you're telling me. I think I threw, I threw, I know I had like a lot of them because I, I had a training room with there's, computers. There's and... like a whole group of people who are just gnashing, rolling over. I think we, agony. yeah, and we, uh-huh. you know, back in the day, we were very happy to get rid of those. I think we do, didn't, didn't we call them, you know, chiclets? No, 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 no. You're getting, okay, you're getting your terms confused. Oh. A chiclet computer, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the kind of MacBook laptop with just the black squares. I believe oh, that okay. is what is referred to as a chiclet. Anyway, we, we, we used to make fun of the, the old IBM keyboards. Well, they were very noisy. And, and um, the sound you heard, so I use Cherry MX switches, and Cherry's been around for forever. Yeah. But... They, they make them in different colors. So red is like the gaming one that makes like no noise. Yeah. I use brown, which is a in, de- in between. And you can kind of hear like a bit of a click clack when I write. Yeah. And then there's blue. And blue is basically kind of closer to the IBM ones. It's like, it's like really, really like loud. every time you press, it's really loud. Um, so yeah, so right. Mechanical switches uh, are deemed superior for a lot of different reasons, and I don't want to get too much so, into it. So but the you're, idea that it's yeah, and I, and I ended and up buying. Digital. I ended up buying one, but you, um, you like it? I do like it. Yeah. yeah, I also like my non-mechanical. You can you you can type more. You can type quicker and more fluidly on a mechanical. Keyboard. I'm not sure about that. I'm not okay. sure about that. Anyway, more accurately. But as we as we go through, then talking about some of these old technologies, then we're saying they might come back. There are yes, there. Are, I so so I was just wanted to say you know you, you just said no one will have any it, it experience interaction with them, and, I, um, and I'm going to be like, not so fast. Yeah, because because it's come, some of them come back. All right, well then let me ask you this. Yeah, you were joking about your loom <laughs> and the punch cards, so. You know, the one of the early ways that people communicated with computers was punch cards. Punch and cards, loops. yeah. So all right. So tell, tell. Um, I don't think punch cards have come back. But to, so why don't you explain? Do you who do you want me to explain punch cards? Do you want to explain punch cards? How they work? I'd like to hear you explain them, and I'm going to oh, see boy. if you're right. Uh, okay. Or, or yeah, if you don't want to, hard. I'll do it. But go now, ahead. For the record, I have never used a punch card okay. in my entire life. Um. So basically, the, the punch the, the way a punch card works is you literally think of it think of it like a card, right? Think of like an airline ticket, okay? Yeah. Now on that airline ticket, there are there 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 are a bunch of like holes on it in random spots, punches, as it were. Now, um, you you hand that to a to a computer, and the computer looks at each little space. And if there is a, uh, if there's a space there, 
then it's it knows to do something. If there's not a space, right, then it knows to do something else. So either having a hole or not having a hole creates the one and zero. You could think of, for example, um, a a vote a voting booth would be the simplest version, right? Where you where there's you literally punch a hole. If you remember, like the Bush v. Gore hanging Chad debacle, right? So a hole means that that's that something happens. A no hole means that something else happens. We'll do that on a much more complex level, and you have a punch card. Now I don't know how it read what uh, what to do, and if I'm right at all. So yeah, I mean that's 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 pretty good, and and you know I'm not a, a computer hardware person either, so. I, I, I'm not I gonna... am, I'm a computer hardware person. I'm just not a punch <laughs> well, card hardware I'm not an, person. I'm not an old computer hardware person. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, basically, you're right. Uh, you had these cards, and, and there were uh, lots of little places um, where holes could be punched through it. And that would, you know, if you think about, um, you know, think about uh binary numbers right yeah and just just as a as a, to back up a little the entire goal of all computer hardware is to essentially get things into binary code one yeah. form or another and that's all so the that or floppies or yeah that's all the cards were doing the internet they were just the the code so what you would actually do um you'd have a there was this, these big machine the big things like like a like a it's like a typewriter the size of a piano kind of, or or keyboard and um the the cards were empty cards blank cards were just stacked up ready to go and it would shoot one in to this to the machine and then you would actually type on a very mechanical keyboard and you would type like someone's name you know now, now we move forward so so just to just to back up the, the first punch cards were used, what, in the 1800s? Yeah, 1800s? you're right. We should we should back up. The first it, punch cards were used in the 1800s. So real old. Were, for and looms. For and, looms, and yeah. And a loom is, for example, if you're making a, a, a carpet, a, fab, a fabric, right? You use a loom to weave fibers together in a certain way. Yeah, and the punch cards would, um, would control... Um, which fabric might which wear which yarn right okay so now we're gonna uh use but, but, the but no we're not but this is pre-digital anything pre-digital pre-computer this yeah, so this isn't even a computer you're basically just using a punch card to control a machine to control the machine right i i saw these i went to this wonderful um textile museum that i highly 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 recommend uh if you happen to be in lille france L-I-L-L-E, which, of course, everyone just happens to be in Lille, France. But um, actually, this museum is so good, you should go to Lille, France just to go visit it. And they gave a, an amazing tour of uh, the history of textiles and the history of the looms with the looms right there. So this isn't a museum where you just walk around and look on your own. They have all the machines there, and someone takes you through, and 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 you they run these machines. They actually use the machines from hundreds of years ago. And the the reason they do this in Lille is this was a huge textile center for um, hundreds of years. So uh, I was is great, but I was very surprised to see there are these extremely large and complicated punch card 
um, systems, and that's contr- that controlled the um, the yarn, and therefore yeah. you could and you would program. They said it took like four years to program the cards to run a particular pattern of fabric. But once you, so it took four years to program that. Once you had it, of course, it meant that you could produce this this pattern of fabric, you know, over and over and over again. So um, that's where punch cards came from. But in the use of computers, you would you would type your numbers or your computer code, your lines of code, um, your data. You would type them on a keyboard, and that would translate. You know, like you type the letter M. And that right. would translate that into the code, um, code for an M and punch that on the card. And then you would have, so you would have the and note. It would not punch an M on the card. No, it, it would, wouldn't. It, it would, would punch, it would, it would, it would punch the ASCII. The ASCII code, the series bits, of holes bits or bytes that, that means an M. an M. Yep. And then you would take your cards to um, um, a machine, I call it card reader. And you'd have a stack of cards. Now, you can imagine that, so you could run a program this way, or you could input data this way, you could do both. And you can imagine that, um, you know, you, you'd have a lot of cards. I mean... Now, now hold on. Yeah. Now, I'm just going to give a question, and then I'm going to have the answer, right? Yeah. So some of you might be thinking, well, wait, why would you have to, if you could just type it in... Yeah. Why might you just type it into the machine to start with? And that is because there was no way to store data. The idea of memory didn't necessarily exist. You could only store very, very, very small, really amounts small of data. amounts. We're yeah. talking like a couple sentences, maybe. Yeah. Right, like a you know tw- six, you know, hundred bytes. A yeah, thousand and bytes. in fact, when you would run the cards through the card reader. Yeah. It would take some cards, and then it would stop, <laughs> and it would think. Yeah. So, so like, and then it would take some more cards. The idea that you could just on a computer, right? You just type, and then it shows up on the computer. Um, is that has so many assumptions. When you type, it's just sending little bits of electrical data. That data has to go somewhere and has to be stored somewhere in order before it can even be processed. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's that's why you needed yep. punch cards. So you you punch because there was no way to store electronic data. Yeah. So you worked with cards. Uh, yeah. You would have you know one program might take boxes and boxes of cards, and you would <laughs> cart them over, and you literally cart them over like on a cart because because the oh com- yeah they were metal. What were they metal or paper? The the cards. Yeah. Oh no, they're paper. They're cardboard. Oh, okay. But okay. but th- the thing is, the computer was in a special building. You know, you didn't have your computer next to you. You had to, you had to go to the room where the computer was. And in fact, you weren't you weren't really in the room with the computer. You were in the room with the card reader, and the computer was behind that wall. You could sometimes there was glass, and you could see the computers whirring around. Yeah. It, so so just just to get it just to get an idea of things. So back in the day, before transistors existed, you had um, you had your old vacuum tubes, yeah. right? And so, right when we think of you have a bug, well, that's because a moth would fly in a vacuum tube and cause it to short, causing the the problem in your code, right? So that's where the phrase comes from. So 
um, back in the day, the way computers worked is each bit, and again, uh, a bit would just be a zero or one, right? So that's that's one bit. It's either on or off. Eight uh, eight bits to a byte. Um, I believe four bits is a quibit, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think like two bits is a biddle. I, I forget about the two bits one. Anyways, so so each uh, vacuum tube was about the same as the vacuum tube that was in um, an old CRT television. Um, so it's maybe the size of one or two apples kind of next to each other. Mm -hmm. That's one bit. Now, uh, a normal ASCII letter takes a couple bits, right? So if you typed A, you're taking up the size of, you know, maybe a square, one or two square feet, right? So yeah, right, it's maybe hard. Like the size of a microwave. It's hard. It really is hard to understand. A. I mean, you see these pictures, these photographs, you know, of computers back mm -hmm. in the, let's say the 1960s, um, 1970s. And there's, you know, they're gigantic rooms, you know, I mean, just gigantic rooms. Well, where... yeah, because if you wanted, if you had, if you needed enough memory to literally to store a sentence, oh yeah, you, you needed you, you needed a huge yeah, amount of huge, space. Huge, huge, and they and would, you know, they they didn't. I mean, they they had. There's no machine we use today that had that little capability that was in that gigantic room. I mean, it was just. Yeah. Well, we yeah. Just, so so that that's why you had the big machines and the different that's rooms. Right. Like literally, you had to have. Uh, these these vacuum tubes yep. made of glass vacuum in order tubes. to house information. Yep. Okay. Uh, even when you went to transistors, the machines were big. All right. So then we went. We we. So that was our initial way of interacting. Uh, there was also a time in there where you could. Um, there would be like a, a. Like they strung the cards together. And instead of having to use like a machine gun cards, there was like a roll, almost like a player piano roll, and you okay. could actually um, store things on rolls. That that was better because it could get rolled up, right, rather than having all these separate cards. So we went to that. Now, then the next wonderful um, uh, improvement was you could talk to the computer on what was very much like a teletype machine. And the computer could talk back to you. So the, it, it's just a machine. Well, I say teletype as though anyone would know what that means. This is like a typewriter looking machine that you could type on. And when you typed on it, it that, that sent the information to the computer. And then when the computer wanted to, to give you an instruction back, the machine, the, this typewriter kind of thing, would start like typing on its own, like a player piano. It would, all of a sudden it would, and it was very noisy. And then words would appear on a piece of paper. So you were talking back and forth to the machine through the typewriter. And that was, that was very exciting because then you didn't need to uh, do the cards necessarily. And it makes a lot of sense because, right, so the computer is, was working in machine code. The human is working in human code, in letters, essentially. Yeah. Um, but to make the letter to machine code transla translation, you need a very complex, very expensive typewriter. So why have one for the human and one for the computer when you can save money? You just I just have one. Just have one. Yeah. And it and it's and it's actually that's interesting because that's actually a more direct communication with the computer than uh, I think 
than we had for a long time. Well, now we're but getting you, back to that. Yeah, but you, did, but you only used that for certain things, and then everything else you did what was called... And by the way, when, when we say talk, and the computer would talk to you... Yeah. It pretty, it, it's not exactly... No, we don't you know, really need Siri. talk. Yeah, it, it's it's and if you were running very a, basic, like if you gave it a math problem, it would type you. It would type back. an answer. But if you were running a big program, you would run it what's called batch, meaning you wouldn't talk to the computer that way. You'd you'd go back to the cards, and then a a, a piece of green paper would appear with your answer. All right, so that was that was that. Now now around around. Um, 19 well actually it was 1969 was the first commercial computer screen um that came out and this was a uh, a screen actually with a keyboard attached to it it was called the data point and now instead of the teletype and instead of cards you could just type on the on this machine and uh, it would talk to the computer and the computer would talk back to you and this was like miraculous now and much cheaper uh yeah and and these were called um you know sometimes it's referred to as green screens which is really kind of weird because actually the screen was black but the letters were green yeah uh if you were very fancy and had extra money you could get um an amber screen meaning and it was called amber i don't know why and it had orange letters rather than green letters amber letters. and that was supposed to be better for your eyes although i doubt it <laughs> and everything you know in, initially everything just scrolled up from the bottom right uh yeah. and then we got to the point where we could show a, a whole screen worth at a time now this is pre pre-graphical user interface right so this is not pictures of any kind it's just words um and then and when you wanted to like um like if you had a form that people were going to fill in no mice no 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 this is pre-mice if you had a form that people were going to you know you wanted people to fill in a form like with name and address and all of that you could actually use your asterisk key to make a box around some of the fields that was how you made a box by typing asterisk 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 you know that's the that's the kind of thing emoji art yeah yeah really it was um and that was as you know complicated as you could get but when we got into this whole idea of showing a screen at a time and then using special key presses to go to another screen and this was when we started developing menus of things um so this is really when the whole idea of designing software so that it would be easy to use. This is when that all came out because, you know, at that point you had the programming group who did not think at all about what this was like for regular people to use. They were just trying to make sure that the numbers would come out correctly or the data would come out correctly when you ran the program. So for a while, there was no one developing the interfaces, and um, they were really difficult to use because you, basically you had a programmer just doing, you know, well, I'd I'd want I'd have the screen look like this, but you know, regular people were not used to dealing with this, and and the programs were you know hard to use, and there were lots of weird acronyms, and you know you couldn't find anything, and uh, it was 
it was pretty <laughs> yeah usability uh was not was not well known and i actually remember when there were a handful of people like i could count on two hands the number of independent consultants that worked in the field of what we would now call user experience um, now, within companies, within some companies, if you were very high tech, like within IBM, uh, within AT&T, um, there would be departments of, you know, human factors, human computer interaction specialists. But in terms of, if you were not a high tech company, if you were like an insurance company, if you were you know, whatever your business was, and you wanted to design software that was easy to use, which was a very foreign idea, and that would mean, y I mean, you were really futuristic thinking if you cared about that. Um, you had to bring someone in from the outside, and there were like 12 of us in the U.S. Like, that was it. Um, so that was a long time ago. Uh, okay, so... Field has exploded since. Yeah, it has exploded since. So then... then um, you know, then you had uh, the Palo Alto Research Group, PARC, and they were thinking about new ways that people might interact with computers, and they were the ones that came up with the mouse and with drag and drop as a whole idea. Dr did and then once there was a graphical user interface, everything just exploded. Do you know what drag and drop means? If I use that phrase, is that a commonly understood phrase? Yes. Okay, well, I didn't know. All right. Um, I would say, well, people are very familiar with the idea of clicking something and dragging it around the screen. Yeah. Right to move it. Yeah. Uh, dropping, not so much. Yeah. When it first came out, it was called drag and drop because it was so wild an idea that you could grab something and move it over to somewhere yeah, else and leave it there. Leave it there, yeah. I would say I would say people would just, the, the drop, people probably are familiar with the phrase. They would, if you say, yeah. um, you could drag and drop things around the screen, they, I think everyone knew what you were talking about. Okay. But I think when they think about it, people would just say, they just well, think of it as drag. dragging, yeah. The idea that, of course, naturally, when you let go of something, it stays exactly where you put it on the screen in the exact dimension. Yeah, that was, that was not, that was a big yeah, deal. Uh, well, of course, that, that's what happens. Out. Yeah. So with the, you know, that, then that was called the graphical user interface or GUI. By the way, the green screen one, it, it was called a character user interface, which, so we call it Chewy. So we had Chewies and we had GUIs. And yeah, that changed, you know, that changed everything yet again when you could actually have now, instead of just asterisks, you could draw boxes. You could group things. You could have illustrations. You could have pictures. Um, you you now had uh, mice, and in addition to keyboards, you had uh, trackballs came out. You know, as a way to interact. Um, Trackpads came later, and so I the always like trackballs. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were cool. So the whole, you know, then the, this whole idea again of making the, the products usable um, became a little, you know, a little more popular. That became a little more important. And again, you, you, you're also expanding the, the um, universe of people that are using computers. Um, 
And uh, the whole idea of, uh, you know, more complicated navigation and so on, you know, so that, that became a, you know, that was a big deal when the, when the graphical user interfaces came out. And then, you know, the next big deal, of course, was the internet, which here's an interesting thing to think about. When the internet first came out and you had internet applications, um, the human-computer interaction portion of that moved backwards initially. Backwards? Backwards. So before the internet, when you had these graphical user interfaces and you had the capability, for instance, of clicking on a drop-down and having a list appear, you know what I'm mm -hmm. talking about, right? Uh, sure. Well, you know, when bef before graphical user interfaces, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that on a character user interface screen. You couldn't drop something down. There was no dropping down. You just had to know the code for, you know, what you were trying to do, and you would type in the code. So when the drop-downs came out in the GUI, that was a big deal. And one of the reasons it is is it, I mean, if you really want to get esoteric here, we can start talking about the fact that when you, you click on a drop-down and choose an item from the drop-down, that, mm. that is using recognition memory. When you are staring at a screen and you have to type in a code, that's using recall memory. And recall memory is harder than recognition memory. So, so at some, on some podcast coming up here, we're going to have to geek out <laughs> on this stuff and really okay. get into all the little esoteric things of human computer interaction. Um, but anyway, that's why GUIs were so much easier than Chewies. And, and, but when we first went to the internet, we did not have the software and programming capability to do a lot of the things that we were used to doing on our GUIs, we could not do on internet in internet applications. So the internet applications were almost like going back to the Chewies at first. You couldn't, um, I mean, just refreshing the screen was a big deal. There were yeah. no window pop-ups on internet screens initially. Sure. You had to refresh the whole screen. You couldn't just pop up a window, which meant you couldn't remember what was there before. Uh, and on a technical level, this is because, um, so today we have very advanced uh, client to server communication that happens all the time. Yeah. And um, and uh, like like PHP script. But we also, which is still complicated today, it's, it's really hard to do. But more importantly is today um, you can load basically an entire module and then do things on the client side. So that's like JavaScript. Right, so we're gonna load all these things, and then with JavaScript, you can do things locally. Yeah. Right, so you can so like when when you talk about um, menus popping up, and drop downs and all that kind of stuff, that's all JavaScript. So the page loads, it loads a file from the server, and then that's it's not communicating back and forth every time. So so then you can you can actually do like drop downs and stuff on the client side. You can have an interface, but before that existed. Um, the only way to change the screen was to go to a new page, which meant talking to the server, which was very slow, and you had to refresh the page. Yeah. 
that's the that's the tech factor. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, and, and, and interestingly, we we had the same thing when we went from because initially we had mainframe computers, you know, big computers, and the only thing you had hooked up to it was a terminal and a keyboard. Like there was no smarts on your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, everything went to the mainframe computer in behind the big wall, right? Uh, and then we ended, then we had PCs, right? So where the, the computer was, right, you know, right there at your feet, right? Uh, and that, so things were faster. And then we went to the internet, which is like, <laughs> it's like going back to the mainframe, only the mainframe is really far away and you don't even know where it is, you know? Um, and then we went to this in-between place where some things are done on the mainframe and some things are done locally, right? Uh, so we've been going back and forth like that for years. Now, one of the one of the things we haven't talked about yet, and I, I should back up a little bit in terms of you know the human and computer interaction or human to machine interaction, has to do with um, you know size and storage. I mean. Um, uh, there were initially when the computers came out, they um, when personal computers came out, when you could get your own computer on your own, you know, in your own space and not connect to a mainframe, you know, you had to have some kind of storage. Now the storage on the mainframes were these, you know, huge, huge, uh, initially tape and then these big drum discs, um, yeah. but you couldn't have one of those at home. So you had these, um, they were called floppy disks because they were floppy. They were uh, eight inches by eight inches. And they, I mean, if you, you could wave them like a fan and all your stuff was, that's how they were floppy. And they were, stu- they, all your stuff was stored on these things. And, you know, if you had one so of the- It's just a, um, for those of you who don't know what, how floppies work, there was this tape, okay, called magnetic tape. And it was a really long, long roll. Think of it like a film reel, except on each little part, it was full of little, uh, mag- it, was, it was, again, magnetic tape, and you could make the bits either zero or one, right? And then the machine would read the tape like a punch card, like the punch card rolls as zeros and ones, except it was much smaller than punch cards. A floppy disk is nothing but magnetic tape that exists in a spiral pattern like a record. And so... Um, the 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 disc the floppy rotates and the little uh, laser well I don't know if they use they don't use lasers but back then the, the the basically the magnetic field detector would detect if it was a zero or a one on the floppy you know and that's how floppy if work. you had one of the it's the same as a CD except if, uh, if you have one of the really big like double density it, it could read one side and the other side if you were lucky enough yeah. to have that. It hold th- it held 360 KB of data. It's a lot of data. KB. It's a lot of data. It is not a lot of data. That's and it and so you saw, it, it, all right and then and then portable computers came out. That was a very big deal. Now these were not laptops per se. They were portables. They weighed 40 pounds. And you could would close them up with latches, and they had a handle, and you could like pick them up and carry them. Very very exciting and when you opened them up half of it was the screen it was it was uh you know we were we were amazed by by the technology it was just amazing and then of course the floppy disks turned into they were still called people still call them floppy disks but they weren't floppy any longer they were the three and a half inch sure little little things well, they were floppy they were just solid on the outside solid on the outside yeah 
the inside of the magnetic tape. So, you know, the, all this um, technology, you know, and, and so there's this been this evolution in the capability of the software, the capability of the hardware, but always this, um, you know, always having that intersection point of how do we design this so that the human can, you know, figure out uh, what to do with it. Um, and, you know, so now, you know, if we, if we just kind of zoom, zoom forward into the present, you know, we still have screens, although they're bigger sometimes, mm -hmm. or they're smaller, right? So we ended up with uh, getting a lot of diversity in screen size. Um, we still uh, we still do a lot with keyboards, whether a physical keyboard um, or whether you know uh, we're typing on a on a part of our screen on a smartphone, right? Uh, we still have mice, although now we have um, touch screens, and you know we're starting to flirt with gestural interfaces. So. In some ways, things have changed the same. Have changed a lot. In some ways, they've they've stayed the same. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, you're right. The need for the need for um, people to design the software so that it would be easy to use or design the application. You know, that's that's what really did explode and and. Um, I mean, I remember the moment, okay? I remember the moment where I realized how big the field of user experience was going to be. And it was before the word user experience was around. Yeah. I was, um, you know, I was teaching usability courses, how to design software so it's easy to use. And uh, back then, I used to periodically go um, take programming classes so that I could understand uh, what was the current state of the art of programming. Because a lot of what I had to do and the projects I was consulting on was I had to um, work with the programmers and developers. You know, right. we had to interact, we had to negotiate. And it helped me if I un if I knew what was easy for them and what was hard for them. So if I said, well, let's do it this way, it helped if I knew that what I was asking was just a big pain for them or a piece of cake. So I used to go and and take classes in the latest tools, you know, so I would kind of know what I was doing. Uh, latest tools in heavy quotation marks. In heavy quotation That was the latest back then. So I remember um, I was in an object-oriented programming class. Which today still exists, still stills rattle. Is, it still is not. Is, it was. Uh, all, before Swift came out, all the um, iOS applications were written in Objective-C. Yeah. So this was, was kind C, of. C, but with objects. So this was, you know, there were a number of different object-oriented programming languages that you could use. And this was. You know, object-oriented programming, that, that came along with the graphical user interface. That's, those two went hand in hand. And so I wanted to better understand whatever this particular programming tool, and I don't even remember what it was, 
but a lot of my clients were using it. And so I went to this three-day class and filled with, you know, everyone in there was a programmer except for me. Like I'm the only usability person in the room. And uh, we, we had a partner and we were doing these exercises and, you know, where we had to design a program to do this or that. And, and I thought I was doing just fine. And I thought I fit in well until at one point my partner, you know, turned to me and, and she, because um, see what I was doing was we were designing this thing. And of course there were two pieces to the design. There was yeah. what's it going to look like to the person using it. And then there was underneath the code, right? Right. And, and being a usability person, I was, you know, probably being obsessive about what it looked like. And being the programmer, she actually didn't care that much about what it looked like. I mean, I'm not saying all programmers were like that back then, but a lot were. And so she was apparently getting really frustrated working with me as her teammate for the three days, and I didn't realize it until she pounded her fist, which I will not do right now because it will make too loud. <laughs> no, go ahead. Pound away. Ah. Pounded her fist on the table during the exercise. The whole, everyone in the room turned to look at us to see what was going on. And she said, we don't have time for this because I was again wanting to make yet another iteration uh, to the design of the prototype. And that was a huge aha moment for me because up to that point in my career, I was teaching and consulting with programmers and developers because there were very few Usability UX and no, you know UX hadn't been invented that that term, and so who did design? Who designed the interfaces? The programmers, of course, and that had been going on for a long time, and that's who I worked with, and that's the classes I taught was to programmers on how to design e things that would be easy to use. But I realized when she pounded on the table that she was absolutely right. You know, these new tools were just getting more and more complicated. And it, I realized it's, it was impossible to concentrate on the code and the design for of the, of the human interaction part at the same time. I mean, and it's, um, it is today, if you look at um, modern... So there, in the last maybe 10 years, and, and again, I'm a mild programmer, but I am not a, uh, I'm certainly not a, uh, you know, I, I don't work on modern programming teams. I'm yeah. not a programmer by trade. Um, there's been a real change in how people organize and work on a project together. You know, so the whole revolution of, you know, GitHub and the, the different, you know, uh, assigning different people to work on different tasks and yeah. it all kind of comes together. Um, modern uh, programs are so amazingly complicated. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, cause back, you know, even back in the day, if you're, if you're writing a program to run some actuarial functions or something like that, like it might be complicated, but the flow is you, like one human has the capacity to wrap their mind around the different flow. And now with some of these more advanced programs, it, it's just mind boggling. 
you know, just hundreds and thousands of different uh, little pieces that come together to make up a modern program. So yeah, you, yeah. It, it, so I can imagine before they really figured out <laughs> how to keep track of everything. Yeah, it, it was it was really pretty tough. it was primitive. So yeah. I I had that aha moment, and I actually walked out of that that class at the well. I stayed till the end. I I just tried to get some peace with my partner. And I, um, but that was an, an, a, a real revelation for me. And when I went back to my office, I changed uh, my whole approach because I realized that this whole thing, uh, computers, software, human computer technology, the, the whole idea was exploding. And um, we needed uh we needed a, people to specialize in, like I was, but we needed a whole lot more. And we, we couldn't, you know, wait for people to get PhDs and whatever. We had to have an army of people who would pay attention to the design and to the human-computer interaction. And I actually then started a campaign to train uh, hundreds and thousands of people to specialize in this and uh, got, talked to my clients, which were for the most part the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. Um, you know, I started giving talks and talking to my clients and speaking at conferences about the need for this. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, really, it really started to grow to where now, um, you know, a user experience specialty um, is considered, you know, one of the best um, careers to have. So uh, although we could have another podcast just uh, arguing about what the role of user experience is these days, but that was a, you know, that was a big change. And now there, you know, now we do have, you know, hundreds and thousands, uh, tens of thousands. I don't even know how many people in in the world who are really concentrating on this aspect of design between the human and the, and the technology. So yeah, it's, um, we have come a really long way with hardware, with <laughs> software, with, yeah. uh, um, you know, how, how much we care, or pay attention to, to that human computer interaction. So there you go. That was the, hysterical historical review and i didn't even go through everything but that is that was a pretty good brush stroke wasn't it i i think so just to provide some context to the history of the field i know we have a lot of fans who are definitely in that world yeah especially younger people who who haven't ever really experienced anything pre graphical user interface yeah yeah I, you know, I've often realized that I should have kept all my old stuff and I could have, like, opened my own museum. <laughs> but uh, you don't know. It's, you know, that's the interesting thing about all this technology stuff. You just don't realize where it's going to head and where it's going to change and what's going to be yeah. uh, interesting to keep and hold on to and talk about and what, and what isn't. Absolutely. And I hope on a future podcast we'll talk about the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I would like to encourage, Guthrie, if I could, before we wrap up here, I'd like to encourage um, 
people to maybe write into us with some of their fun uh, old technology stories and see if yeah. we can uh, yeah sure um, get any again, stories info at the teamw.com if you have any stories um, I guess while I'm doing it uh, feel free to rate us and do things um, also if just to throw well I sh- I'm gonna start saying this more if you ever want us to come speak at your event we we do that so just you know you can email us again info at the teamw.com yeah we uh, can come we can speak uh, i speak you speak you know what we, we haven't speak. done yet together is 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 speaking we could speak together we could do that well i mean we do the podcast anyways um so that that all the social media whatever is follow us do things you can check out courses.theteamw.com also just theteamw.com for everything about us um any anything else you'd like to add no i think that's good yeah hopefully yeah just just a little uh primer on uh all the different um the history history of things so uh with that i guess i'll I'll wrap it up and